Support for MindShift comes from Landmark College, offering a fully online graduate-level certificate in learning differences and neurodiversity programs. Visit landmark.edu certificate to learn more. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Welcome to MindShift, the podcast where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I'm Nima Gobier. As caregivers and educators, we're likely used to interacting with schools in the day-to-day sense. It's easy to forget that our experiences of school today are built on decades of history. And that's what I'm here to talk to Dr. Bettina Love about. She's a professor at Teachers College in Columbia University. Her recently released book, Punished for Dreaming, explores the disproportionate impact of education policies on Black students. If you've ever wondered why certain issues in education persist, Bettina might be able to give you some answers. My conversation with one of our favorite abolitionist educators, Bettina Love, is up after the break. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. I'm going to start at the top of your book. There's a story that you share about Zook in Punished for Dreaming. Can you tell me about how her experience shows the impact of educational policies on individual lives? Yeah, I thought it was important to really talk and use real people's lives to talk about school reform. 
Zook is not only just a person in the book, but she's one of my dearest, closest friends. And I was able to really understand how school policy impacts a person through Zook. And so Zook is a high school basketball star. She can do almost anything with a basketball. We are on our way to winning city and state. And then there's this report or this allegation that Zook and some other male athletes are not going to class. They're not attending class. And all our games are taken away. And then at the disciplinary hearing, Zook doesn't have anybody there in her corner and she punches a teacher. But she doesn't really punch a teacher for that particular incident. It's all the incidents. It's going through school for the last 13 years and not having one teacher tell her that she was bright, not having one teacher take any type of care, having a teacher in middle school body slam her to the ground and put her in a chokehold. 13 years of harm. And the book really opens with her story because it was a cautionary tale for me because I saw how you could be a superstar, you could score a lot of points, everybody could love you. But if you do something that people feel is so-called criminal, then you are punished for it in America's schools. And she was really the impetus for this book. And so the book really wants us to put education in the same conversation as crime reform and welfare reform and immigration reform, like all these reform policies that we know historically have been hurtful to people of color. We don't think about education reform like that. So it's really trying to use people's stories to go through the last 40 years of education reform and tell the story about what happened to us as Black people through education. Let's take a look at Brown v. Board of Education. I'm thinking about me as a kid in Walnut Creek, California, in public school, learning about Brown v. Board. And I was taught that it was definitely a good thing with no downsides. Most people don't know about the harm that it caused. Can you talk about how it shaped the trajectory of public education specifically for Black students? It is probably one of the most consequential cases in the last 70, 80 years when it comes to education that we don't talk enough about. So it was really important in this book for me to talk about what we had before Brown. Now, there is a glorious time of Black education before Brown versus the Board of Education. Not only were Black teachers teaching, they were highly credentialed. They were teaching students to their highest potential. Black teachers made up 30 to 50 percent of teachers in a segregated South. Wow. We had upwards to around 90,000 Black educators teaching about 2 million Black children, with almost 89 percent of them being Black women. So Brown pretty much guts Black education. And so then we see almost 38,000 Black educators fired. Black teachers are pretty much out of the profession through policy, through reform. And here we are, you know, 70 years after Brown. And in the last 40 years, Black teachers have not made upwards of 10% of teachers. Black male teachers are less than 2% of teachers, and Black women are anywhere from 6 to 8%. All students benefit from teachers of color. And so it has been a disastrous loss, not only for Black students, but really all students. 
that's really important because it's not that Black teachers aren't qualified. It's not that they don't want to teach. It's that they were pushed out of teaching positions. Right. And I want to be very clear. It's not that white teachers can't teach Black students. That's not what we're arguing. What we're arguing is that 88% of the teaching force can't be white. You need diversity. You need diversity of thought, diversity of ideas. You need to at least have through your 13 years of schooling, someone who looks like you and talks like you and understands you and sees you. It's important. Representation is important. Your culture is important. Moving forward in history, I want to discuss the Reagan presidency and what you call the war on Black children. Can you voice over some key policies and shifts during this time and also the repercussions those had in education? Reagan was was not very fond of the very ideas of public education. He was also not very fond of the government paying for public education. Reagan takes office, 1982, he declares a war on drugs. 1983, Reagan releases another report it's probably one of the most consequential education reports of our time, which is A Nation at Risk. A Nation at Risk says that this country, the United States of America, is failing behind most Western countries and that our education system is failing so badly that, you know, it could cause a war. Right. This is this language of just fear mongering. By 1984, a year later, Reagan comes out with a report called Chaos in the Classroom, which says, these children are so rude and disorderly, we need police in schools. That's 82, 83, 84. Just those few entry points, you start to see how education reform and crime reform begin to merge. We start to see this language that is extremely punitive, not only in crime reform, but it becomes punitive in education reform. Reagan was really the linchpin, really the start, the spark of this really merging education reform with crime reform. And every situation that I just talked about from the war on drugs, a nation at risk, chaos in the classroom, the data was always flawed. These reform efforts and these policies were not created with data that actually was factual. Much of the data was misleading. With such alarmist titles, too. I feel like that's the first giveaway. Chaos in the classroom. Like, where? Where is this guy? What's going on? And I, you know, and I think what people need to be clear about is that let's say the data was correct. Okay, let's just say the data wasn't mis- mis- misleading. Okay, if that's what's happening, the solution should not be be punitive. The solution should have been, well, we need to hire more teachers. We need that pay teachers a high uh, living wage. We need to have smaller classrooms. Why is the solution, well, we need more police. How has that got anything to do with the low test scores that you're talking about? Like Those things don't go hand in hand. Given this historical context, I feel like at this point we're standing on a pile of punitive reform ideas. What does the educational landscape look like for Black students in particular? And what are some of the challenges Black students are facing because of these policies? Well, you know, I think many people would say, you know, the critical race theory bans, the book bans, and those are serious things we have to be talking about. 
But I also want us to understand that in 2016, there was a report by Ed Builder. And Ed Builder came out and said that white schools in this country receive $23 billion more funding than non-white schools. We also know that students who need the most in this country get the least experienced teachers. One in five teachers moonlight. Teachers around the country are deeply underpaid. We've seen teacher strikes all over the country last year, and I'm sure there's going to be many more this year. Our schools have air pollutants in them that children can't breathe. Our schools are talking about an achievement gap. We need babies in schools with, with clean air and clean water and credentialed teachers. We need schools where children can walk in and feel a sense of pride. And we also need schools where they can learn about themselves and the beauty of their history and who they are. Education right now, when you put all of that in context, is pretty dire. What I'm hearing in your answer is that a lot needs to happen on many different scales. What should we be looking at as far as, I mean, I'm scared to say policy reform at this point, but what should we be looking at on a national level? What needs to be done to address some of the issues that you outlined? A child in this country per pupil rate is like between $12,000, Like that's what we get per pupil. Joe Biden is running and saying, listen, we need to increase Title I funding, per pupil funding by three times. So like making every child, particularly in low income schools, low income communities, you know, $30,000. Not only was that struck down, but it was struck down by the Democrats too. Folks who say they are about justice and equity and equality are shooting down these type of policies. Like we got to be clear that there has been no party that essentially has been the party of education, has done some type of educational justice, liberation, thoughtful equality work. We actually need politicians who are going to actually fight for teachers, fight for parents, fight for students, understand inequality, understand historical inequalities, fight for funding, fight for resources, right? You cannot simply say that you're going to hold education and teachers to these policies, to these laws, and then don't have anything in the background to say how they're going to support you. In your book, you make a case for reparations. Can you clarify what that means first for people who might be new to this concept and also what it might look like? Yeah, you know, I, I thought it was really important to try something, write about something bold. And so what I argue in this book is that if you look at the current education system, just my generation, the last 40 years, harm has been done. The way Black students have been policed and tested, expelled, funded, you have changed the trajectory of my life through education. Another word for operations is repair. So how do you begin to repair this system? And the fullness of reparations is to end harm, is to atone for harm, is to start to think structurally how we say hey, we did this. We know we did this. We're apologizing because we did this. We're compensating you because we did this. We're going to end these policies that have done harm to you. If you can't see Black folks as beautiful and worthy, then reparations is hard for you. If you know who we are and you know our history, you know what we've done and what we continue to do, 
and you see how this country has treated us even as we have keep creating and loving and inventing, then you will understand why reparations is important. Shifting the focus to educators and administrators, what actions can they take to make their classrooms more equitable and inclusive for Black students? And I also want to acknowledge that I think it's really hard to think about what to do at the teacher level when so much is happening at the policy level or so much isn't happening at the policy level. I think the one thing teachers have to do on a very personal level is just take care of themselves. Drink your water, meditate, exercise, do some yoga if you can. Like find some time to really care about your well-being and yourself. Because we need teachers not only in the classroom, we need teachers well in the classroom. Right. Go to therapy, indigenous practices like we got to be well to show up for our kids when we know we are teaching in a system that is proliferating their destruction. So that is a really hard thing to show up every day, knowing that there are so many systems and structures and rules and policies and tests that are hurtful. Administrators have a lot of power, too. So we need administrators to really understand what is necessary for a teacher and move that busy work to the side so they can actually do what they need to do. But I would say the biggest thing that teachers and administrators can do tomorrow is remember that you have children in front of you. And what we see now is that seven-year-olds and five-year-olds and 15-year-olds are treated, particularly if they're black and brown, like adults. We got to remember that these are actual children. I love that double-pronged approach. It's like, number one, if this meaning could be an email, make it an email. And number two, let kids be kids. My last question for you is, what is your vision for the future of education in America? What do you hope to see in the years to come? What I would hope to see in the years to come is that the folks who say they are truly concerned about education, make the policies, make the laws, would actually ask Godi Muhammad, Dina Simmons, Yolanda Silly Ruiz, Gloria Latson Billings, Cynthia Dillard, Adrian Dixon. Like, I would really like them <laughs> to understand that there is a profound piece of knowledge. Linda Darling Hammond, like, there's a profound piece of knowledge. Pedro Nogueira, like we can go on and on and on of these educational giants. There's folks who have answers and solutions. Pick up our writings. Ask us a question. We would like to be in these conversations. We got years of data, experience, and knowledge. And so that's what I would really want to see. I would want to see the folks who have invested their careers and their time and have done this work really be the ones who are asked, charged with doing the education work. The folks in the communities and the parents and the aunties and the grandmas who have knowledge. I would love to see us actually ask a question. Oh, I love that. I want whatever new policy that comes out to be, please ask Goldie Muhammad. Ask Goldie Muhammad, right? There are just people 
who we know are amazing Black educators, scholars doing this work. So I would love for them to be able to create policy on a federal level. These yeah. folks know what they're talking about, know what they're doing. Never called. I think MindShift's audience is really going to appreciate the reading list you just gave them. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. I'm glad we had this opportunity. Thank you. Bettina Love's book is called Punished for Dreaming. MindShift will have more minisodes coming down the pipeline to bring you ideas and innovations from experts in education and beyond. Don't forget to hit follow on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a thing. If you like what you heard in this episode, I have recommendations for you. We did an episode with Misha Mosley about why every student deserves a Black teacher. We've also done two episodes with Goldie Muhammad. Ask Goldie Muhammad. The MindShift team includes me, Nima Gobier, Ki Sung, Kara Newhouse, and Marlena Jackson Rotondo. Our editor is Chris Hanbrick. Seth Samuel is our sound designer. We receive additional support from Jen Chien, Katie Springer, Cesar Saldana, and Holly Kernan. MindShift is supported in part by the generosity of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and members of KQED. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit Donate dot kqed dot org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks